Father, I do pray that in this moment, after the reading of your word, that for this preaching, that you would send your spirit to empower me and speak through me what you have so long ago revealed about your son, Jesus. I pray that you'd give us all ears to hear and to receive this word and to put it into practice in our lives. And may it bear much fruit for your kingdom and lift this up to you. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Antonius sat alone, thinking, in a deteriorating apartment in a slum in Rome. That morning, his employer, a rough, burly fellow named Brutus, once again turned from the task of pricing fruits and vegetables to ridicule this young Christian. Antonius cringed against the man's emotional blows, wishing he could strike back out of his hurt and embarrassment. And each time he turned the other cheek, it received a slap in kind. Yet he bit his lip, nursed his wounded pride, and again asked the Lord's forgiveness for his thoughts. Persecution of the church in Rome had yet to result in martyrdom. In recent months, abuse of the church had escalated with the amused approval of the emperor himself, and now emotional fatigue was taking its toll. Antonius had been told the cost of following Christ, but somehow his experience was different than he expected. In the beginning, he thought his joy would never be broken, that he would always feel the presence of God. He had been taught that the Lord, the righteous judge, would vindicate his new covenant people, and that God had put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. But the church had taken a great beating lately, and members of its various house groups had become discouraged and were questioning whether Christ was really in control. In their hearts, they wondered if God had closed his ears against their cries for relief. Some in their disillusionment doubted and left the church altogether. Antonius, a convert from Judaism, remembered the traditions of the synagogue and the support of the Jewish community, the joy of the festivals and the solemn celebrations of the Jewish calendar. He appreciated the fellowship of Christ's church, but genuinely missed the traditions of his ancestors, and he missed members of his family who disowned him after his conversion. To make matters worse, he was one of the poor members of the church. You see, when Antonius became a Christian, he lost his job as a tailor's assistant in the Jewish quarter. And now he spent his days sorting rotten produce, sweeping the floor, and swatting flies. He stooped so low as to take pieces of rotten fruit home to supplement his meager diet. Antonius had missed the weekly meeting and worship for the past two weeks and his heart had cooled somewhat toward this little house group. A spiritual itch in the back of his spirit warned him, cautioning him concerning his loss of perspective. Yet in recent days, he had begun to snuff such thoughts from his mind as quickly as they came. Antonius's bitterness over his current circumstances was growing and slowly obscuring the truth. That night, the believers were to meet for worship and encouragement. Rumor had it that the leaders had received a document from back east somewhere. Although discouraged and tempted to skip the meeting again, he decided to travel the short distance to the neighborhood house at which the fellowship was to meet. After a while, the group's leader, a good and godly man of almost 70 years, finally arrived. Joseph was visibly moved as he stood smiling before the group of about 20, his hands shaking slightly 
from advancing age. After a few words of introduction, Joseph took a deep breath and explained he had talked to the other leaders into allowing his group the first reading of the scroll. With a twinkle in his eye, the elder said, I believe you will find this quite relevant. He unrolled the first part of the parchment and began reading with vigor. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. With these words, the letter to the Hebrews begins. Discouragement. We all face it. As Christians, we all face it in some measure in our lives. Antonius certainly faced it from the social and economic pressures placed on him as a convert to Christianity in the pagan city of Rome. Though Antonius is a fictional character, he represents truthfully the known experience of first century Christians in Rome. The author of Hebrews knew that the church in Rome was under significant pressure to deny Christ in order for life to go more smoothly. The Christians there felt the grip of discouragement, pulling them down deeper into self-pity and despair. And in the face of discouragement, the author of Hebrews calls Christians to turn their attention and focus away from the immediate circumstances that cause discouragement and to return their attention to Jesus, to his person and his work. The discouragement addressed here results from bearing public witness to Christ. That's what the letter is addressed to, a, a community that is feeling the pressure from bearing witness about, the, about Christ in their public settings. But discouragement may also arise from broken family relationships. That was certainly true of Antonius and his decision to follow Christ. It can be true of us in a variety of different situations in our own lives. We can experience that discouragement from broken relationships. We can experience that discouragement from sins, self-loathing accusations against us. Or we may experience that discouragement in the death of a loved one. In addressing discouragement, the author of Hebrews does not first throw us back on ourselves with exhortations and instructions about what to do and how to do it. No, the author from the very beginning directs our attention to Jesus, the Son of God who spoke, our great high priest, the author and the finisher of our faith. Discouragement at root is the loss of confidence. I think given our theme this year on courage, and given the word, it's the loss of courage. It's the loss of confidence. And when we experience suffering, especially prolonged suffering, the ever-present danger is that we lose our confidence in God. Out of such discouragement, we can begin to question the very victory of God in Jesus Christ. Discouragement works by taking our eyes off of Jesus and placing them on the difficulties we face, on the circumstances we face. It takes our eyes off of Jesus and places them on the pain and the sorrow that we're in the middle of. And to have our eyes fixed on Jesus does not mean that we are oblivious to these circumstances or oblivious to the pain or the suffering. But rather in the midst of this, in the midst of these circumstances, whether it's suffering or comfort, because indeed comfort can take our eyes off of Jesus and we need to be realigned, reoriented to Christ. So whether the circumstances are suffering or comfort or sorrow or happiness, we remain resolved in our focus on and commitment to Jesus. 
The letter to the Hebrews is all about reorienting our gaze and renewing our commitment to Jesus in the midst of circumstances that can easily erode our confidence in God's power and God's love for us. Have you been there? You know those experiences of life, the difficulties, the pressures that have those nagging questions at faith about God's love? Is it really true? Is his victory in Christ, is it reality? Is it reality for me or just for some other people? The letter to the Hebrews is all about reorienting our gaze. Our New Testament lesson this morning from Hebrews 4 and 5 reorients our eyes, fixing them securely on Jesus and his high priesthood as the basis for sustaining our confession of faith and hope in his continued work on our behalf. Look with me at Hebrews 4.14. I encourage you, if you have a pew Bible there, you can turn to it. If that's helpful for you, if not, you can just listen. Hebrews chapter 4. 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Since we have Jesus, let us hold fast our confession. You may be thinking, what does Jesus passing through the heavens have to do with me holding fast to my confession? We might say everything, some people might say nothing. I think it has everything to do with us holding firmly to our good confession in Christ. Jesus passing through the heavens as our high priest is a a way of saying or a way of making two claims. First, that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice of his own life and blood to pay our sin debt. You see, in the Old Testament, sacrifices were made once a year for the high priest and for the nation of Israel that enabled the high priest only once a year to move through through the various layers of the tabernacle and enter the most holy of places, the holy of holies, where God's presence was dwelling in the cloud above the tabernacle. And the only way that priest could enter in was through the appropriate sacrifices. That priest was accepted. The people were accepted into the presence of God through that priest and the appropriate sacrifices. So God, in Jesus, passing through the heavens, is a way of saying that Jesus' sacrifice as our great high priest has been accepted. And what's more is that he doesn't do this year after year. He's done this once. And then he sat down at the right hand of God. He has accomplished the work. God has accepted Jesus' sacrifice. The second claim that is made is that Jesus is victorious over the devil and the evil powers that hold humanity captive to sin and death. You see, Jesus passed through the heavens in his ascension, and his ascension is the proclamation of his victory over all things, over the devil, over sin, and over death. Jesus has won. Jesus passes through the heavens. God has accepted his sacrifice, and Jesus has won. Jesus' victory comes through his high priestly sacrifice. He has defeated death in his death. He has triumphed over the grave. He has paid the accepted price, atoning for our sin. This is clearly related just a few chapters earlier in Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 14, where the author says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, referring to Jesus, likewise partook of the same things 
that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus' victory comes through his high priestly sacrifice. God accepted Jesus' high priestly sacrifice on the cross, and here's the sign of his acceptance, that he, rose him, that, he, that he raised him from the dead. That's the evidence that Jesus has won. That's the evidence that his sacrifice has been accepted by God, that God has raised him from the dead. The resurrected Jesus passed through the heavens in his ascension and entered the throne room of God, and upon entering that throne room, he sat down once and for all, at the right hand of God's throne, victorious. Oh, we have reason to be confident. We have someone who enables us to hold securely our good confession. So the author of Hebrews is saying, since we have this guy, since we have this guy on our side, since this guy is for us and not against us, think Romans 8, the Son of God, the victorious one, the one who freed us from bondage to sin and death, since we have this guy on our side, we can hold fast to our good confession because we are sure of our place with God. We are sure of our place before his throne. We are sure of his acceptance. We are sure of our relationship to him. The author of Hebrews is calling this beleaguered church to hold on to their confession concerning Jesus in the face of opposition. And he's calling them to do this with intense resolve. To hold fast intensely this confession of faith. You might be asking, what does this mean to hold fast? To hold on to one's confession is more than a verbal affirmation of faith. Though it certainly involves that. To hold on to one's confession means to live out one's belief concerning God's acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf and his victory over sin, death, and the devil. And we do this by living, uh, we do this by living our beliefs out through a lifestyle of commitment. A Christian confession involves commitment of one's life, not just a phrase on one's tongue. A phrase on one's tongue is so easily thrown away, but a life trained and habituated in commitment to Jesus Christ and based upon Jesus' work and person for you has lasting power because of the one in whom we have entrusted ourselves, in Jesus, the one accepted by God, the one who has passed through the heavens. As our culture continues to view our Christian confession as a social negative, and in some quarters, as a social evil, our commitment to Jesus will be tested more frequently and with greater intensity as the years pass. The trial of our commitment comes in the form of increasing social and economic exclusion. This is already happening in various parts of our society. We're holding to, to one's Christian confession as revealed in Scripture may result in your exclusion from certain social settings and circles and in your exclusion from certain professions and parts of the economy. We are already seeing private, professional organizations beginning to adjust their codes of ethics around issues concerned with human sexuality and gender identity that committed Orthodox Christians will not be able to sign in good conscience. Congress may very well pass the Equality Act, a legislation that 
may be used to marginalize Orthodox Christian belief and practice. The trial of our commitment is here. Now, I'm not drawing our attention to these ongoing realities to scare us. Remember, we are fasting from fear uh, during this Lent. I don't say this to scare us. But we must be aware. We must be aware of what lies ahead of us as faithful Christians who desire to hold fast our confession. Because our commitment to Christ and the truth of God's revelation will be increasingly more tested and tried. Please don't be afraid of that. You have someone on your side. Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who has gone to bat for you. He was not ashamed of you. Don't be ashamed of him. And so we must ask ourselves whether our faith is God-centered or self-centered. Are we willing to pay a price for our association with Christ? He sure paid one for his association with us. Do we hold our commitment to Christ only as long as it doesn't impinge upon my social acceptance or my economic well-being? We can be thankful that the church throughout the ages has been blessed with powerful examples of those who have held their commitment to Christ in the face of social and economic pressures and even physical violence. Even up to this day throughout this world, we have examples of this. Franz Jägerstadter was an Austrian farmer and peasant whose commitment to Christ was tested. Jägerstadter refused to swear loyalty to Hitler when conscripted to serve in the German army, and it cost him everything. He was executed in August, in August 1943 for, for, for maintaining his commitment to Jesus over Hitler. In one of his letters written to his wife while he was in prison awaiting trial, Jägerstadter wrote, I know, dear wife, that I do not engage in this struggle in order to make my life wonderful. As long as God's grace does not abandon me and I do not lose my faith, nothing, nothing, he says, can be unfortunate. You see, Jägerstadter's commitment to Christ points to the fact that to carry out such a commitment in our lives, the commitment that the author of Hebrews is challenging his readers back in the first century and is challenging us with today, that commitment demands resources beyond what each one of us possesses in ourselves. We need God's grace. We need God's grace to hold fast our good confession. If you still have your Bible, look with me at verses 15 and 16 in chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of God's grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. In his last written meditation before his execution by the Nazis, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, the key to everything... That's when you want to kind of perk up a little bit. The key to everything is in him, is in him. 
it is certain that in him we may always live close to God and in the light of his presence. In him. In Jesus. This is the location of every baptized believer. We are located in him. In him we are brought into intimate communion with the triune God. Jesus does this by taking on our human flesh. Please, no, please realize this. That you have a communion, an intimate communion with God through Jesus. He has taken on our flesh and he has taken that flesh with him to the throne room of God. And he communes with Father and Spirit. And because we are located in him, we have the deepest of communions with God available to us. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He has enabled that kind of communion for us. In Jesus, we have open access to, to God the Father. In him, we can approach God's throne of grace to receive mercy. To receive mercy. And to find grace at the time when we need them. This is all made possible because he took on flesh, human flesh, to become our high priest and to offer his life as a sacrifice for sin once and for all. Jesus made our approach to God possible because he first approached us in human flesh. And because Jesus took on our flesh, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. Have you heard of something that's called uh, sympathetic resonance? You know, so if, you, if we were to have two uh, pianos here in this room and one note was struck on one piano, the same note on the other piano would gently respond without anyone striking it. Strings of the same resonance or the pitch or whatever it is, they speak to one another in one sense. They have this sympathetic resonance. You can do this with tuning forks of the same pitch, or, or I'm not exactly sure. I'm no expert in that at all. Alex, you can help us, maybe someone else, who are musical. But there's this idea of sympathetic resonance. And Jesus' instrument is his full humanity, his full embodied humanity. And at his ascension, he passed through the heavens, fully human, and entered to the throne room of God, and has sat down at God's right hand as human. And when we hurt, when we suffer, when we experience pain or joy... When we are tempted to uh, abandon our commitments, Jesus feels that. It resonates with him. And he, and he intercedes for you before the throne of God. He is a high priest who can sympathize. He can sympathize with what you're going through because he has felt the full range of human temptation. He has felt the full range of human emotion, yet without sin. And he is there always beside the Father, interceding on your behalf. He has sympathy. The sympathy here that's envisioned is not kind of the compassion that feels bad for someone in a bad circumstance and then walks away. It's the kind of compassion that leads to actually helping that person. That's Christ's sympathy. Christ does not stand aloof from what is happening to us, but rather he cares for us in all our weaknesses interceding for us before the throne of God. Jesus' compassion invites us into intimate relationship with the Father and makes that relationship possible. When we face the temptation to abandon our commitment to the faith, this priestly work of Jesus connecting us to God is so important, so important, because perseverance and courage depend on one's relationship to God through Jesus. 
you will not persevere and you will not maintain courage on your own. We will not do it as a community together without reliance upon God and without being connected to the Father and his throne of grace through our high priest Jesus. Because of this relationship to God that Jesus makes possible as a great high priest, we can approach the Father's throne of grace. The verb tense here, let us draw near, indicates that approaching God constitutes an ongoing and continuing reality, an ongoing and continuing aspect of the Christian's relationship to God. The author is saying, let us continually, without stop, draw near to God and his throne of grace. How do we access these resources? How do we access the resources necessary to maintain our commitment to Jesus? How do we draw near to the throne of grace? We continually draw near to this throne of God's grace through prayerful worship. I mean, what we're doing here this morning, gathered, we draw near to God's throne of grace through prayerful worship, for it is only here that we encounter the one who holds the authority and the capability and the capacity to meet our needs and to provide those resources at the right moment when we need them. We need God's mercy and grace, and we can only find them at his throne. And we have full and open access to God's throne through and in Jesus Christ, our high priest. We therefore have access to everything we need to hold fast to our confession, maintaining our commitment to Christ in the face of discouragement, whether that's the result of our public commitment to Christ or the result of suffering from our sin or just suffering from the general brokenness of this world that results from sin. If living a life fully committed to Jesus appears to require more than you have or desire to give, then you're in a good place. It's, it surely does. It requires far more than you are ever capable of giving of yourself to fulfill or to hold on to. You need your high priest. You need the one who has gone through the heavens before you and is seated at God's right hand interceding for you. Approach God this morning through Jesus in prayer, asking for what you lack in courage or desire. He stands ready to give you mercy and grace in your time of need. Just seek him. As Matthew says, seek first the kingdom of God. Follow him confidently this morning behind the cross. I love, I love our worship I love that the procession has the cross. It reminds us in an embodied way every week that the only way we have access to the throne of God to receive his mercy and his grace is behind the cross of Christ. Jesus leads the way. There's no other way to God for salvation or for what we need to sustain our lives in the face of whatever it is that we encounter. It is only behind the cross. Follow him confidently this morning and receive of God the mercy for your past failures and the grace for the things that have yet to lie in front of you. The key to holding firmly our confession is that we continually draw near to God through Jesus and we do this in prayer. Beginning here in the gathered worship of the church, but not stopping here, following the cross out those doors and into every part of our life. We can continually draw near to God through prayer at any moment and in any place. May God give us all the grace we need 
to face discouragement and the testing of our commitment to him through Jesus, our great high priest. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.